Stand up if you would. I'm going to read uh, part of our passage for the day from Luke 13. Encourage you to bring your uh, uh, Bibles, your iPhones, your iPads, and look along with me and follow along with me. Uh, it will be on the screens if you don't have that, though. Luke 13, 31, a striking passage. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. Today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Word of God. Please be seated. All right, can you just imagine that poignant scene Jesus making his way back from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. And, and whenever you come upon Jerusalem for the first time, it's just this beautiful forested hills, white stones. Of course, it's so much smaller now than it, uh, so much smaller then than it was now to today when I lead a group every February there. And we always start in the Sea of Galilee the north and that area and that region. And then we go down the Dead Sea and Masada way south. And then we make our way from the Jordan River on the bus uh, coming from the uh, east. And whenever we kind of go through this bridge tunnel area, and for the first time we get a vista of Jerusalem, it's always very emotional for me. Because, um, I mean, there's no city on the planet like Jerusalem. Uh, man, this is the place where the prophets were. This is the city of David. This is where, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac on Mount Moriah. This is where prophets were stoned and killed. And this is where Jesus was brought as a baby. And, and in later years, he would come into the temple grounds and teach. And, and this was the focused area of the presence of God on earth. And this is the city where Jesus was crucified on a cross and where he rose on the third day and 40 years later where he ascended from the Mount of Olives and where he is coming again. There is no city on the planet like Jerusalem. And even for Jesus, it must have been deeply moving, particularly in light of the fact that he was coming to the city to die. And can you imagine him? He gets up on uh, coming from the north, probably Mount Scopus, the tallest of the mountains around there looking over the city, as some Pharisees are coming to him and saying, you better leave because Herod is uh, you know, out, to, out, out to get you. And by the way, when we read about Herod in the New Testament, there is a Herod when Jesus was born, and there is a different Herod when Jesus, was, uh, Jesus died. There was Herod the Great, one of the great builders of the ancient world, especially ruthless uh, at the time of his birth. 
And then there is his, is his son, Herod Antipas. At the time of his death, he was just medium ruthless. And, uh, you know, you better leave. Herod's out to kill you. Jesus, completely unintimidated, undeterred, unafraid, basically says, hey, tell that fox, uh, I got work to do. I'm doing it. And how could it be that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem? Rather than hearing that Herod's after him and running from Jerusalem, he hears that Herod's after him and said, I'm going moving into Jerusalem. Because he says, as in Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I came to die for sinners. I came to, 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 to pay for sin on a cross. So he was not afraid at all. But then when he thinks about dying in Jerusalem, he just cannot help with his aching, agonizing anguish. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he doesn't mean the buildings and the hills. He means the people. Oh, Jerusalem. You know, I came for you. I came for you. And you spurned me largely, spurned his love. And his heart weeps over the rejection of the people. That's God the Son. You know, sometimes when we picture God, we picture God because he is so vast and great as not having feelings or emotions. Do you see God that way? That's not God. God is... Because he is spirit, and because he is the sovereign, holy, infinite God, he is not less personal than we are. He is more personal than we are. He has deeper feelings than we've got. And when the people that he loved, the people he created, the people that he died for spurn his love, that hurts, and that matters, and he grieves You know, one of the images of God that really kind of comes out of the Bible is God as the jilted lover. Jilted lover. You know, probably the highest and deepest picture of God's relationship with us is marriage. This morning before the service, uh, Doug Williams just kind of grabbed me and said, Jeff, thanks so much recently when you mentioned how much you love Gail. Because that's just a reminder of the way God loves me and he's got it exactly right. The best of marriages... The intimacy, the oneness, the closeness, the sense of being together, that is the picture that God wants for a love relationship with you to be like. And all in the Old Testament, there's this imagery of of God and Israel as his bride, and his bride is so often a wayward bride. Think of the book of Hosea, for example. And in the New Testament, there's Jesus, the groom, and the bride, the church, us. So there's this imagery But so often the bride is wayward, and God is the spurned lover, the jilted lover. And his heart just comes out in this striking scene, the heart of Jesus, the heart of God. And of course, that's not just the heart of God for those people then, but for we people now. For you, every one of us. He didn't love those folks in Jerusalem so much because, you know, they were so responsive and obedient. They largely rejected him. John 1.11 says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Largely the Jewish people rejected him. But he loves them, loves them. You've got to see the heart of God for you this morning is that kind of love. You matter to him. You 
matter to him, no matter how you may have spurned him, how maybe you feel like a failure or you messed up, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. Open your heart this morning to the love of God for you. But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just right now, you sense the Spirit of God just working your heart, and you know you need just to say yes to him. Just say, yes, Lord, I receive your forgiving love in Jesus. And he'll come in. So, uh, Jesus, just, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, uh, 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 another just kind of an area of, uh, of application for us is this, is, is if that's the way Jesus feels about lost people, isn't that the way that we, his followers, must feel about lost people? I mean, if they matter to him, shouldn't they matter to us? Yes, I mean, I mean uh, we, we need to feel about people, all people, including ISIS people, people that in our neighborhoods we don't particularly like, uh, all people. We got to see them like Jesus sees them, feel about them like Jesus sees them, uh, care about them like Jesus cares, but because they matter to God. He died for them. He died for them. It's past uh, a week ago Sunday, if you were here, the passage took us into the reality of judgment in hell and how Jesus talked about there will be one day folks on the outside and it'll be too late and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's talking about hell. And he's saying, uh, you know, this is a real thing. Um, and and I, I talked about the urgency of our top five, of our people in our streets, people in our workplaces that do not yet know, know Christ. There is a real heaven and hell. And there are urgent stakes. Well, Joe Lanzalotti, one of our student pastors, he, he said he was, for one of our services, he was over here. And he heard me talking about that, and he immediately thought of one of his top five, his neighbor across the street, a Vietnamese neighbor by the name of Jimmy. And he said, yes, Jimmy was on my heart. Well, later that afternoon, uh, Joe was out in front of his house in the driveway, and he sees Jimmy kind of walking down the, the, the road, the, um, uh, the street in front, and he was kind of ranting and upset, and he asked him, you know, what's going on? And, and Jimmy's uh, daughter was bitten by a neighbor's dog, and when he approached the, the, the neighbor about it, you know, he just wouldn't have anything about that, and he was just so frustrated. And, and, and he said to Joe something like this. Joe doesn't know him very well. He said, uh, uh, you people who go to church, that's why I don't talk to you guys. I'm different. And, and it just kind of was out of the blue, and, and, and you know, Joe uh, was, you know, just trying to, to love him. He's one of his top five, doesn't know him that well. Well, and just that morning, he had had Joe, Jimmy on his mind. And uh, so Tuesday morning, we have staff prayer together, and then their student team was meeting. And uh, we've been praying lately. I mentioned this also last Sunday. Let's, when we pray for our top five, let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for boldness and love. And uh, Joe said to his teammates, hey, give me a pray that God would give me boldness with Jimmy. Because this happened Sunday afternoon, and, and I want to have boldness and love with Jimmy. Well, that night, same night, this is last Tuesday, uh, uh, in the evening, he, he's outside and he sees Jimmy's garage door open, you know, a few houses down, and Jimmy's sitting in a chair in the garage. And so God answered his prayer, gave him boldness and love, and he approaches him, walks right in there and asks about his daughter, how that's going. And Jimmy, you know, told him about that and he engages him and and, and he again mentioned, uh, you know, going to those kind of churches. And Joe asked, well, you, what do you mean by that? And, and you know, churches with all those rules and regulations. And, and Joe let him know that, you know, he didn't want to go to that kind of church either. And, uh, and, and, and Joe asked about his faith, which is a good thing to do, humility. You know, ask, uh, be a listener, not just a talker. 
And Jimmy began telling him about his Buddhist faith. He's Buddhist. And even took him in the house and showed him his shrine to his gods. And, and, and they talked about 45 minutes. And uh, Joe said to him, hey, hey, next time I'd like to tell you about my faith. And Jimmy said, okay, we'll do that. And, uh, and, then he asked, and then he invites Joe and Allison, his wife, come this Saturday. We're having a big traditional Vietnamese dinner at our house, about 30 people. You and Allison come. And they, they, they said, okay. And they did. And this morning I run into Joe outside when I was walking in. And uh, he said, well, it was great last night. And, uh, you know, there were about 30 of them. They were all Vietnamese background except for me and Allison. And at one point we were going around the room and, and uh, people were saying, because they didn't all know each other, you know, what are you, what are you doing for a living, that sort of thing. When it came to him, he said, well, I work at a church. Oh, what do you do at that church? Well, I teach the Bible. And he says, just real silence at that point. Uh, <laughs> Gail and I were flying back in vacation a couple of weeks ago, and we, we sat at the, with this young woman, and uh, we were just chatting away with her and asking all about her. And at one point, she asked, you know, well, what do you guys do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And she said, oh, and didn't say another word to us the rest of the time. So we pastors get that. You know, we're a dangerous sort, you know. You got to watch those pastors. But, um, okay, back to Joe. Uh, he said, you know, I teach the Bible at this church. And they, he's silent. They kind of went on. Well, a few minutes later, the guy sitting next to him leans over to Joe and says, hey, I'm a believer too. And so is that guy over here and that guy over there. And together, they're going to reach Jimmy. So uh, boldness and love. Um, Because people matter to Jesus, people have got to matter to us. All people. Top five people. All people. So... Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem. Now, 14.1, the scene changes. We didn't read this. This is what happens. One Sabbath, so a change of scenery, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. They were watching him like a hawk. Why? Because this is a Sabbath. Now, uh, remember, this is not the synagogue. This is a private home, probably some dinner uh, dinners at this time uh, were kind of quasi-public events at rulers, Pharisees, rulers, houses. You know, maybe it was in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And uh, they were in there, and they were watching him like a hawk. Is he going to violate the Sabbath? Now, you just got to understand, you can even see this in some ways today going to Israel. Even though Israel is so secular in so many ways, there's a lot of Orthodox Jews, and it just kind of colors the country. And, uh, you know, Shabbat, Queen Shabbat matters so much. In fact, you can go in a hotel and uh, there will always be a Shabbat elevator so that on uh, Saturday it will stop at every floor automatically so you don't have to do the work of punching the button and uh, stuff like that. But back in that day when it was not a secular country, it was a theocracy, you know, ruled by, you know, religion and God was together, um, you know, the main identifying mark of the Jewish people this time would have been the Sabbath. You know, that, that is a commandment, uh, Ten of the Commandments, that, you know, keep the Sabbath holy, uh, Fourth Commandment. But it, it became the main identifying mark. This is what distinguishes us. By the way, a little note of human sociology, just about all religious folks, about all people, like external identifying marks to stamp them as part of that group. 
Maybe it's the way you dress. Maybe it's the fact you go to church on a Sunday or you get money or you read the Bible, you carry your Bible. But we tend to gravitate to externals. Jesus is always moving us from externals to internals. Don't focus on the externals. They focused on the Sabbath rules, many of which they added to the fourth commandment. Okay, back to the past. They're watching him like a hawk. And behold, there is a man before him who had dropsy. Some kind of swelling. You doctors and nurses would know all that is involved there. But isn't that just kind of an interesting coincidence? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, you know, the man is just right there before him at that banquet. They're testing Jesus to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath and violate the law? Okay, this is what happens. Verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now, you attorneys who are in the house this morning, uh, you're safe. This is not talking about you. These are really theologians, talking about more like guys like me than guys like you. Because in a theocracy, with the Mosaic law being the legislation, uh, these lawyers were really, they were, they, were law, they were experts in the Mosaic law. They were theologians. So really, read pastors. Okay, he's talking about the pastors. He said, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And what do they say? Well, let's read. But they remained silent. Now, can you picture that? You picture that scene? The guys right there, obvious, you know, what's going on. Uh, Jesus looks around. You know, they're not that far away. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they start looking down. They're not going to answer. Maybe they just shrug their shoulders. But, you know, kind of awkward. You know, they're, they're not responding to him because they don't want to respond to him. They don't want to engage him. Then he took him, Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Of course they will. Of course. And they could not reply to these things. Just pointing out the inconsistency. And by the way, when you've got externalism, there will always be, be uh, uh, inconsistencies. By the way, you know, we see this kind of thing with the Sabbath and Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. So many aspects of that. But, but one of them here that, that I think speaks to all of us as humans is, you know, the Pharisees, they majored on the minors. And they minored on the majors. What's the major? Well, Jesus said, told us later, what's the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He wants us to love him back. And the second, love your neighbors yourself. Love those folks in your neighborhood. Jimmy's, Five Oaks, all around. Loving God, loving people. Friends here at Wood's Edge, let us be completely clear. Whatever else it goes on around here, these are our majors. And let us be bulldogs to major on the majors. We don't love Jesus. That's our mission. Love Jesus. Journey together. Journey together in love. Bring hope to the world. Bring hope to the world in love. We want to major on loving. 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 Satan will try to give us all kind of other things to major on. Including good things. If it can distract attention from loving God and loving people. Okay, so he's not going to put up with that nonsense. He's going to challenge that, speak to it, heal the man, sends him off. Now, the third movement is probably the most interesting of all in some ways. Verse 7, now he told a parable, a story, to those who were invited, invited to this banquet. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, 
saying to them. Now, now so here's the situation. They are, the people there, the, the Pharisees, religious leaders, kind of subtly, you know, you don't want to be too, too uh, uh, overt about this. They're, they're subtly trying to get in the, the places of honor so they can feel important, look important, give the impression of being important. And this is the cultural situation because it's very different than anything we would be in like. They would be sitting at these U-shaped tables, and the place of honor was the base of the table, the, the base of the U. Uh, there, a, a couch would hold three people all around the table, three people each. And the middle seat in the base uh, couch is, and they recline on their left elbow and they'd be eating. So, and then the second seat of honor, it was all elaborate and specified, nobody knew it. The second seat was to his left, third seat to his right. And then you would go around the U to the left couch, middle, left, right. Then you'd go to the other side to the couch, middle seat, left, right, and then back to that, and, and et cetera. Elaborate system of the seats of honor. And we might read about that and kind of get an idea, and we think, how silly. But, but we do the same things. We, we have our own ways of showing status and honor and wealth and prestige and education. Use these titles. Here are these degrees. I know these people. You know, even airplanes. We got a little bit of that. I mean, use of first class, business class, economy plus, economy, you know, all kind of thing. I mean, we, we just, we have our own ways. The cars we drive, the houses we wear, the clothes we wear, the, the way we drop names and places and all kind of ways. We got our ways. There is something about the human heart that we have this great tendency that we want to look important to other people. We want to impress other people. And we may be trying to be subtle, but we have it. Nobody here is free of it. This is what they were doing. Jesus said, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Don't get the back seat. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And then here's the punchline. Here's the, here's the principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is quoted several times in the Gospels. The principle is taught a number of other times in the Bible. The theme of pride and humility, you know, is one of the most basic things running from throughout the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation. Now, keep in mind what we're dealing with. We're not talking about, you know, overt, uh, hey, exalt me, you know, over, even overt bragging. We're talking about subtle trying to be in a place to look more important, more spiritual, more, uh, you know, an important priest or whatever they were. Subtle ways to impress other people how important they were. We do the same thing. It's deep in the human heart. You know, we just subtle ways we want to impress other people. How much money we've got, how much education we've got, how much we know who we know, what we've done, what we've got, where we've been, all kind of ways. Uh, even in the church, uh, you know, to, to try to impress others how much the Bible we might know or uh, what we're serving here or there. or You know, even in prayer, uh, when we pray in public, there's this part of us that, you know, wants to kind of look spiritual. 
or just as bad, not praying in public because you're afraid you won't look spiritual. Both of those, pride is all behind it, and I'm not free of it. And I doubt you are either. And and why is it that we have this desire to impress other humans, the other two-legged creatures whose breath is in their nostrils, the Bible would say? What's that about? That's our insecurity. That's our not being mm, completely secure in God's love for us. Um, you know, it doesn't work either, does it? You know, when, when somebody is trying to impress you, you know, a little name dropping here, a little accomplishment dropping here, does that impress you? <laughs> it doesn't, does it? It nauseates you, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, we all see it. Why, why would we think that you know, others don't see it in us? We all see it. You know, I was thinking this morning that the only thing about other people in this kind of situation that impresses me is when I can tell they could care less about impressing me. That's the only thing. Okay, I like that. Anything else, yuck, yuck. Uh, Why don't we just kind of stop that and and just kind of be secure in God's love for us and just forget about impressing each other? Because Jesus is really telling those people... And we people, this is exactly what pleases him. He who exalts himself, wants to be the center of the attention, wants to look important, wants to look uh, prominent, wants to look, you know, knowledgeable, wants to look whatever. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So lie low and exalt Jesus. That was the attitude of John the Baptist. When the crowd started going from John the Baptist to all the baptizing, they started moving to Jesus his disciples ran to him. Oh, they're all going to Jesus. And what does he say in John 3.30? He says, he must increase. I must decrease. Jesus is going to exalt that kind of heart. Forget about impressing. Pursue obscurity. Now, now, what if we actually did that? I mean, I'm not there yet. Uh, but, but what if we actually had that attitude with each other? Uh, that we would, would really prefer obscurity because we could care less about impressing other people. I mean, he who humbles himself, I will exalt. When I was talking to Joe Lanzalotti last week, when I, he started telling me the story, I said, Joe, that fits in perfectly in my passage this coming week, and I, I'm going to tell that story. Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. Well, a little bit later, he emails me the story, and he said, hey, by the way, Jeff, don't use my name. And, and, and he's, a, he's modeling this passage. He didn't know it, but he was modeling it. But I pushed back and said, look, Joe, I, I'd love to be concrete if you don't mind. And people get, a lot of people know you get a name and a face, and it's not that big a deal. So he gave me permission. But uh, that, that's the kind of attitude. Don't mention my name. Um, this morning at, a, at an early service, um, we had uh, Captain Bill Dowling here. Uh, Bill Dowling, two years ago when four firefighters were killed in southwest Houston, Bill Dowling uh, was badly, badly hurt, barely lived. He's from our church, lost both legs, all kind of other things. He's in a wheelchair, been there since then, and, and it's just been a tough, tough thing. And uh, Bill and Jackie, they, they haven't, I think they've been able to come one other time, but uh, at about a place, he's doing really well now, about a place he can start coming. So he was in the house, and, and I prayed over them and briefly reminded folks who Bill Dowling is. And I think Bill has left. Yes, he has. I don't, think he's, I don't see him back there. Well, some, someone uh, came up to me after the, the ser- ser- service and uh, 
gave me in cash $10,000. Give this to him and don't tell him who did it. And um, I, I, I don't usually carry $10,000. I don't know about you, but... Uh, uh, and I know enough about this person to know that's always his attitude. Don't tell him who did it. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of attitude that we want to have in every part of life. Pursue obscurity. And that's true one-on-one with our friends. And that's true at work. And that's true in our neighborhoods. We can just sort of let that go. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And God is well able to humble the proud. He who humbles himself, the root word is this, is low, low. Uh, He who humbles himself, I will exalt. Lie low and exalt Jesus. George Washington, I'm a biography lover, but I haven't read much about Washington, not read a whole biography of him. But someone sent me the story this week, and apparently Washington just even more remarkable than I knew. For example, not only did he was our first president and led the uh, Independence War, but uh, uh, when he was 22 years old, he was leading a regiment. He was a young lieutenant colonel out in the forests of Ohio, and uh, he, they came across some French soldiers. There was some tension, and he had one of his soldiers fire against the French, and that started the French and Indian War, which started the larger global war uh, called the Seven Years' War, and historians would say that was the first really world war, and it was started by this bullet that... Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, 22-year-old Lieutenant Colonel George Washington uh, gave the order for in the forest. I mean, he had such a critical role in so many ways. Of course, later, when uh, the war against the colonies in Britain, he was, you know, he's the guy that has to lead us. And he just did this incredible job leading these ragtag bunch of colonies to defeat the British, powerful British Empire and win their independence And at that point, King George in England, in London, asked an American painter who was living there, Benjamin West, what is Washington going to do now that they have won the war? And Benjamin West said, I understand he's going to retire to his farm to live a private life. And King George responds, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. I mean, to, to take that kind of humble position after, you know, winning the war, if he retires to a private life on a farm... He'd be the greatest man in the world. And, of course, that's what he did. Years later, there's the Continental Congress, and they're planning the new government and how they're doing it. Well, when it comes time to uh, uh, elect the president, you know, they want Washington. And uh, for a second, oh, by the way, uh, after the war, some people were saying, uh, let's forget the Congress and let's make Washington a dictator. I mean, we need him to run. And he said, he said to one officer, don't even think about that again and don't mention it to anybody. No way. And then when he's made the first president and the the second term, after that, there was no laws at the point about uh, multiple terms. You could have kept serving. He could have probably been president for life. Uh, But he said, no, that wouldn't be good. I'm retiring. I'm stepping down. He steps down again. And, uh, you know, uh, he's modeling lie low and exalt Jesus. And history knows his greatness. Uh, you know, that's a big thing. I mean, we're, we're not running for president, most of us. But in all kind of subtle ways and little ways, uh, we've got the choice. We can exalt ourselves, and, and later God will humble us, or we can humble ourselves. And one day God will exalt us in his way. 
Either way, you're going to be humbled. Question is, you want to humble yourself now for a short time or you want to be humbled forever and eternity by God? I'll take now. You know, the, we do this in all kinds of subtle ways and attitude and motives mostly, not trying to impress other people, uh, not trying to draw attention to ourselves. Don't have to be the life of the party. Don't have to be the center of attention. Don't have to get credit for things. Uh, don't have to be public. Don't have to worry about how spiritual we are, what we're doing with other people. We're focused on exalting Jesus alone. Now, the greatest example in history is not George Washington, not even close. The greatest example was when the triune God in heaven, the infinite, eternal, sovereign God, when God the Son steps out of heaven, gives up the glory and all the honor and the praise and the worship of 10,000 times 10,000 angels, and he leaves the glories of heaven and he comes down to this earth and becomes a little baby who would need his diaper changed. Help us. That is the most staggering act of humility ever. And then he grows up, and the whole purpose of him growing up is so that one day he could be fully obedient to the Father, including obedient to the point of giving his life for you and me on a cross. So that some kind of a cross structure like this, outside of Jerusalem, Jesus was nailed with spikes, bloody nail spikes through his arms and his legs and a spear in his side in humiliation, completely naked, the Lord God Almighty, now in human flesh, humiliated and dying on a cross for our sakes. It is the most incredible act of humility that we could ever imagine. He humbled himself. I became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most shameful, humiliating death imaginable. And then what happened? Philippians 2, 9 is where I am. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day we will be there, all who have trusted Christ, and it will be incredible. And we will be worshiping, we will be bowing at the feet of Jesus. Because God tells us there is a spiritual law of the universe that he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself now will be exalted. And friends, if we are going to claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, how dare we go around trying to impress one another? Let's just, me too, let's just give that up and decide from this point forward, I choose to lie low and exalt Jesus only. Stand with me, please. Lord, give us grace and give me grace to humble ourselves and exalt you. Lord, give us the freedom of forgetting about impressing one another. Mm. Lord, I am eaten up with that. Rescue us. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ, the most humbling thing you can do 
is to admit before a holy God that you have sinned against him and you need a savior. Because you cannot save yourself by being religious enough or good enough or moral enough. And just right now, just call out, breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. I can't save myself. Come and save me. And he'll do it. He'll do it. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Lord, give us grace to walk in humility together. In Christ's name, amen.